You know something? We don't just shill our own projects. We'll shill yours. Email sponsorship at producerfoundry.com if you'd like to inquire about sponsoring any of our events or this wonderful podcast. Talk to you soon. to another exciting episode of Film Insight, and with me as usual, well, my name is Randy, and with me as usual is Mr. Ben. How are you, Ben? I'm good, Randy. How are you? All right. I'm doing all right, and today, man, today we've got a fantastic interview. Mm -hmm. Barry Freeman, who most famously was in a documentary about the Motion Picture Association of America rating systems called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. He now has his own consultancy for filmmakers to get help with getting their films rated right he does and you know while we're on this topic we're gonna plug them like four or five times in the interview outstanding but um that film is on netflix and if you're a filmmaker you really should watch this movie after you listen to this podcast of course so anyway uh you want to dive right in yeah i say we let's get right on with barry and get started Hey, on the line with us is Barry Freeman. He is a ratings consultant and formerly with the MPAA. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do, Barry? Sure, Ben. First of all, it's uh, great to be with you folks today. I look forward to speaking with you for the next half hour or so. I was on the MPAA ratings board for 10 years, and I rated more than 8,000 movies from, I believe, 2002 to 2013. And I saw a need for a filmmaker to be represented in the ratings issues. So I've presented myself as the film ratings expert to filmmakers. The MPA ratings board, their first objective is to help out parents find the correct rating for their children. And I saw that the filmmakers need representation and I'm, I'm looking out for them when I help them submit a film, work on edits, negotiate with the MPAA on ratings and descriptors. And anything ratings related, I'm there for them. Okay. So the subject matter here, it's, it's a hot button topic for filmmakers. I've watched this film is not yet rated. So I remember your involvement in that. I think film ratings is still generally considered this weird black art. And it definitely comes into that realm of filmmakers not necessarily knowing what to change. So is that what your chief benefit that you add with uh, your advising or your, your consultancy? That's, that's true, Randy. There are very few clear-cut rules when it comes to the ratings board and giving the movie their ratings. There's a soft rule on language with the F word. There's some guidelines on drug use. But overall, it really helps to have seen thousands of movies and see the way the films are rated. Just have a real feel and note specific instances on how a movie makes it into a particular category. I've heard the ratings board or the NPAA be called anything from chaotic to mysterious to monopolistic. Everybody in the film business has a particular view on the ratings board. I'm pleased that it's not a perfect system or I wouldn't have a business, but I, (laughs) but I do, I do believe that it does serve a purpose and it's very difficult to be a one size fits all Uh, you know, for all parents. So I think on the whole, they do a good job. But again, like everything else, nothing's perfect. True. One of the things you mentioned that comes up often when you talk to a filmmaker are the general rules on sex. 
for sex in films, what you can show, what you can't show, and any rules regarding intimate portrayals. What would you say are some general guidelines for keeping a film PG-13 but having an intimate scene, and is it even possible? Then the ratings element that's the toughest to really pigeonhole and to be able to make clear definitive statements is sexual content. While smoking and language and violence, it's a little more clear cut. Sexual content has always been that area where filmmakers just don't know where it's going to fall between PG-13 and R. I would say if you have, you know, if you have a sex scene and you're showing more of the shoulders up and not showing, you know, full body movement, or there's a lot of implied versus anything graphic, I think there's a big difference there what you think you see versus what's shown on the screen. So sexual content is probably the one ratings element that's the most difficult to pigeonhole. I would have to say you'd have to really look at it and see it. And then if you're in post-production, be incredibly careful on the edits so that if you're in a time crunch, you're prepared to get it into that 13 category. Okay. So the question inevitably comes back to, and I don't mean to jump directly into, hey, how do you avoid an R rating? But I'm actually more (laughs) interested in how films kind of run the edge between the R rating and the NC-17 rating, at least in the US, where it's like, is that much more clear cut or is it just as murky as the PG-13 to R transition? Randy, I would say there's just as much murkiness there. I think one thing that maybe the filmmaker may not be aware of between the uh, the R rating and the NC-17 rating is the NC-17 was originally an X rating for strictly adult sexual movies, you know, adult porn. Right. And the MPAA copyrighted the NC-17 to differentiate from the old-time X rating. Now, the NC-17 doesn't necessarily have to be a rating for sexual content. It can also be a rating for a patently adult violence. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, on the patently adult violence, has that really happened that many times, though, just for violence? Well, the mainstream moviegoer is not going to know films that were NC-17 because it is mm-hmm. uh, box office venom. And NC-17's almost every single instant will be cut down to an R you know, for Mm -hmm. theatrical release. So there's not many NC-17s that get cut down to R, but yeah, there certainly are some. And it's really not that clear cut, Ben. I mean, you have your movies like The Saws and, you know, The Saw episodes and other ones that are really on the upper edge, but they really have to be so over the top and so grisly and so patent adult that a parent will want no part of their teenager having any chance to see it. So it has to really be fairly extreme either with you know sexual content or violence to make that category. One thing that got brought up in this film is not yet rated that kind of rang true to me as someone who's involved in the LGBT scene in San Francisco is the seemingly harsher ratings for gay and lesbian sexual activity than heterosexual sexual activity. Has this dichotomy decreased since that film was made? Because it has been about 10 years, and the climate for homosexuality has changed quite a lot. Absolutely. Well, you know, by the way, I want to let you know, that was my only film credit on IMDb, was this film is not yet rated. So Mm -hmm. they made me as famous as I am today, guys. (laughs) That was certainly one of the three or four hot topic buttons in this film is not yet rated. And I would suggest to any filmmaker that would ever have a film to be rated that 
they take a look at that. I believe it's on Netflix. It's mm-hmm. a Kirby Dick mm-hmm. film. It was a scathing indictment on the system. And my personal opinion is ratings on any type of gay sexual scene have not changed all that much in the last 10 years. There may be uh, uh, some push on it, but my guess, and again, I'm not on the ratings board. I left uh, the end of 2013, is that the Raiders think that mainstream America is going to be more conservative on you know, parents letting their children you know, watch that type of uh, sexual scene compared to heterosexual sex. So on that particular uh, topic, I don't think there's been much change. You know, the folks at the MPAA may have a, a different uh, take on that, but I don't feel it's changed that much. There should be more movement towards the center on rating the gay scenes because it's certainly much more mainstream. It's in the media and it's out there. It's, it's a whole different atmosphere now in society than it was in 2006. You know, you're absolutely right about that. I think that overall, what I've kind of come to realize again is the notion that sexual content actually has a much lower tolerance level than violence, because the way you described an NC-17 rating to me was like violence in that respect would have to be so depraved or so kind of detached from any humanity that that would cause that sort of rating, whereas for sexual content, I could see a gay scene or a scene between two men engaging in sexual contact would be quicker to hit that NC-17 threshold than, say, a scene between two women or uh, obviously your heteronormative sort of uh, approach to a sex scene. So is there any guidance that you can give filmmakers in advance? Because it is becoming more prevalent. So is there any advice that you can give somebody in terms of how they might Think about how a scene would come together, or is it just stick to innuendo and don't show any flesh? Sure, Randy. If you're talking specifically about a gay sexual scene, what I would say is be prepared to cut when you're not sure. I mean, I've been at it for many thousands of movies and been around for several years, so I I can't give definitive information other than I think if you're going to show a male-male sexual scene, you're going to probably want to be on the side of caution and cut a little bit more, and have two or three different versions prepared to submit to the ratings board. Okay. Can you go over a little bit of what process is, how many resubmits you get, how expensive it is, anything along those lines to give our listeners a better idea? Because quite frankly, even as a producer's rep who helps independent filmmakers get distribution, this is a process I'm not very familiar with, and I think most filmmakers would say the same. Sure, Ben. I'd be happy to. First of all, on fees to submit to the MPAA to receive a rating and descriptor. And again, that's something we may want to talk about also is the descriptor that goes along with the rating. It varies from as low as $2,500 to the smallest budget film up to $25,000 for a film that's $75 million plus. And then depending on the total cost of the film, it's between those two ranges. As far as resubmitting, you submit the film, they look at it, they give you the rating and the descriptor, and you have a choice whether to accept that rating and that exact descriptor or to make edits or to plead your case and say, I understand it's an R rating, but can you phrase it with this descriptor instead of that descriptor? So There's a little bit of leeway there if you can make your case and you have reasoning and maybe you can cite other films that have had a similar descriptor. Those are the type of things that you can do. There's a little bit of give and take on the descriptor 
And as far as what to expect, it really depends on the ratings element. I would say a language rule that I can just throw out to you right now that can maybe clarify a few things, and then it'll probably leave you even more confused when I'm done, will be that most films are allowed to have one F word in the film, pretty much regardless of what the content of the film is, but that F word cannot have a sexual context to it. There are some movies that can have two F words, and that happens sometimes, and oftentimes that can depend on context of the film. If it's a sweet film that's primarily really has a PG or a PG-13 feel, and I use the word feel to say, you know, it's, it's a kind of film that a family would watch. Oftentimes a film will be allowed two uses of the F word. After the two uses, I think all calls are off and you have to plead your case. And more often than not, you're going to have to leave it at one or two uh, uses of the F word. That's the F word light or soft language rule as it seems to be applied to today's ratings board. As far as drug use, if it's adult recreational drug use, what I found is a small amount of recreational drug use can be in that PG-13 category. When it involves children or teenagers, anything to do with minors, it's a lot more difficult to make it into that category. And then you have those, you know, those ones on the edge where maybe you have to take out a couple of tokes of the joint, or you can't have the drug pipe in the background, whatever it is. But again, oftentimes the films are rated on a context, not just on specific scenes. So hopefully that helps give you a little bit of a feel for a couple of the elements. Well, as fascinating as this is, we do have to take a break because we've got to pay them bills. We got bills to pay and we're going to go take care of that now. Hey, I'm Ben Yenny. I'm one of the co-hosts of Film Insight, and I am also author of a book called The Gorilla Rep, American Film Market Distribution Success on No Budget. It is a practical guide to establishing relationships with distributors at the American film market and features advice from six of those distributors themselves as to what they're looking for. It's a textbook at 10 film schools and available at more than 50 independent bookstores. Pick up your copy today through Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Thanks. Bye. Welcome back to Film Insight, where we delve the mysteries of the film industry for your benefit and uh, now, I guess, we're going to jump into a really interesting discussion topic now as part of our interview with Barry, aren't we? Yes, we are. Okay, so let's talk about breasts. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's talk about them, Ben. That's awesome. Um, what a great lead-in. Yeah, and I'm, that... I'm, just, I'm just listening. I just don't even know where this is going, but I have an idea. Okay. Um, there is a... Uh... There's a statistic I heard back in film school, and this may no longer be true because this was an embarrassingly long time ago. Having bare breasts in a movie increases revenue on average by about 13%. I don't know what the most profitable ratings are anymore. I haven't kept up on that information. I probably should. But is it possible to show bare breasts in a PG-13 movie or does that automatically make it an R, or does it depend on context, length, anything along those lines? Sure. Well, uh, let me address the the idea of profitable ratings category first, Ben, if I could. And mm -hmm. it sure seems like PG-13 is a sweet spot for most filmmakers. The majority of projects that I work on are films that are already made. They're in post-production, and they realize that they may have made an R, and they need a PG-13. So and I've dealt with the majority R to PG-13 situations. So 
that is still box office gold, even though we now have those the raunchy comedies that seem to have a pretty decent box office in R. With regard to breasts, well, if you have a National Geographic breast, it's a whole lot different than a woman about to have a sexual scene that's that's extremely adult. So on the whole, if it's going to be something in a documentary style and there are breasts shown, that could be a PG or PG-13. Now, if it's really in a sexual nature and they're about to have sex, the woman is showing breasts, that often can be R and it's going to be watched a lot more closely and probably end up on the side of R more than Mm PG-13. What if it's something like various state of undress for non-sexual reasons, like, say, walked in on in a comedy or somehow, or if we're in the family thing, somehow the kids stumble across a nude beach, anything along those sorts of non-directly sexual ways where you may end up with seeing bare breasts. Sure. You know, uh, so much of that then is how quickly is it? Is it almost like a subliminal view? Is mm-hmm. the is the camera hanging on that scene for three or four seconds? It really is a, a, a scene by scene basis. But I would say that that the the filmmaker cannot plan on having uh, breasts shown in a 13, and they may want to make uh, preparation when they're planning the film or before they submit. Actually, I wanted to ask, uh, going back a little bit to the process, how long does it take from the time where a filmmaker would submit the film to the MPAA and then get back the decision, the rating and the descriptors? Sure. Uh, and that's a great question, Randy. I think all filmmakers would love to know if they come across, you know, if they end up having a film released theatrically. Uh, that can vary anywhere from I've had a film submitted and rated, submitted same day, uh, fees paid and DVDs overnighted and be submitted and rated within a week to it could be as long as six weeks. So if a filmmaker okay. if a filmmaker does have a theatrical release or they have a limited release and they need a rating, what they'll want to do is take care of that. They may want to give me a call well ahead and I can go through the process and help them out with that. I would suggest, and of course you can call the MPA directly to see what their uh, lead time is, but I would suggest to give it a good six weeks and not to wait until the last week, the last day, the last hour. That's dangerous if you mm-hmm. if you have money and you have time depending on it. Sure. Is there a market at all anywhere for unrated films? I run a film festival and I don't deal with MPAA ratings at all. So it's a question for me of, you know, you talk about it as box office gold, box office venom. But, you know, at what point does a filmmaker decide, you know, I have to go get this film rated so that it's going to actually be seen more broadly? Randy, I think uh, what I would say is, if a film is being made to sell to a Netflix or an HBO or another marketing channel that doesn't need a rating, then there's, there's not a need for it. What ends up happening, what I end up seeing is a film ends up getting picked up at a film festival. It creates some great buzz. It receives an audience award. And the next thing you know, they're going to be in a theater in LA and New York. The distributor wants it to be filmed in two weeks and you're really stuck. You're under the gun and you're not going to be able to sleep because you're at the mercy of what the inventory backup is at the MPAA and possibly having to make edits on the film. So uh, what I would say is if there's any possibility that your film needs a rating at any point, uh, Napoleon Dynamite was one of those films that ended up just taking the world by storm 
And those type of films that end up creating a buzz, maybe hit a social media, those are the type of situations where you, you're better off being prepared, knowing what to do and getting out ahead of it than realizing in 10 days you have the greatest film in the world and it's creating all this buzz and you're stuck. Got it. Mm-hmm. Are you only allowed to re-edit once? Or are you allowed to re-edit multiple times if you continue to pay the fee? Is there an additional fee for re-editing? Sorry, that's like three questions right there. But <laughs> I, um, I think yeah. I, I think I get the gist, but no yeah. problem at all. And that's that's a common question, uh, you know, from filmmakers. They don't want to submit seven edits and receive seven fees. So I completely understand it. You are allowed to re-edit. Now you make a film and you submit it. You need to re-edit. You can do that. It may end up being one scene. It may be several scenes. It may be having to streamline the whole movie and make multiple edits and submit the entire film. That's under one fee. If you end up accepting the film, but then it gets changed down the road, in other words, you want a special version or the director's cut, whatever it'll be, it'll be a different title. It may just add on whatever the film is and then director's cut or what have you then that's considered a completely different film and that would be uh, resubmitted with a new fee. Okay. So there is a fee for re-editing or no? No. 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 Okay. No. For a film, they're allowed to keep submitting, but if they're not making necessary changes and they seem to be submitting pretty much the same movie, you know, they could have difficulty if they have a time crunch on, mm-hmm. on the MPAA holding it up, but that would still be under the same fee. Okay. That makes sense. The only thing that remains for me is just understanding the descriptors. Let's talk briefly about that. How important is that in terms of a a film's marketability? Again, I leave that up to the filmmaker. And what I try to do, Randy, is I'll fight and negotiate for a different descriptor if a filmmaker doesn't like it. I recently submitted a film that the filmmaker got uh, received the rating that he wanted, but he didn't like the descriptor. It included uh, really specific information about the violence and who was receiving the violence, the, the victim of violence. And we ended up, we were able to cut it down to a less frightful type of description. I think, yeah, some filmmakers are concerned with the description and I think it, it can make a difference. If a filmmaker is making a strong slasher movie, they may want it filled with every possible descriptor, the grisly, the gruesome, <laughs> the bloody, the grotesque, the images, you know, those type of things. If you're making more of a, of a Disney type of movie and it's PG and it's PG for, you know, thematic elements and language, the filmmaker may want thematic elements and mild language. There are so many various potential descriptors and there are ways to make a descriptor sound stronger or weaker or scarier or more parent friendly. So that that can make a difference. And I I would suggest to filmmakers to keep that in mind when you're making the film, keep in mind that you may want a particular descriptor and that may change the way you shoot the movie or the way you shoot a a particular scene. Okay. Actually, I have one question just popped in my mind. Does anything get G-rated anymore, really? Boy, you know, Ben, I haven't seen the, the most recent years box office numbers on G versus PG and so Mm -hmm. on down the line. There are very few. And one of the reasons is it takes very little in a G movie to turn it up to PG. I believe there was one movie that was recent. I believe it was Cars 2. And 
there were cars that were actually kind of menacing and they were fighting each other. And I think 10 years ago, I don't think that would be considered a G, but again, you know, things change and that ended up being, I believe it was either G, either G with a lot of parent complaints or or PG with a mild descriptor. So yeah, I would absolutely, a filmmaker should really keep in mind the descriptor when uh, as early in the process as possible. And again, that's something I would love to work with producers on. Okay, actually, I did just think of one more question and then we'll let you go. Sorry, I swear. Oh, um, wonderful. I, yes. I, I'm enjoying uh, it. <laughs> um, but uh, the NBAA's guidelines really seem to have changed over the not necessarily years, more decades. I'm a bit of a Bond nerd. If you go back to the old ones, like Dr. No, Goldfinger, and a lot of those, the content is not vastly different than a lot of today's in terms of violence, in terms of... I mean, maybe there's less overt sexuality in it, but there's just as much drinking. And they're still getting PG ratings. Um, I'd have to Google it, but I think there might even be one... Bond movie with a G rating. I could be wrong on that. Well, though. the recent then the recent yeah. uh, Bond movies have all been PG thirteen at least yeah. since I've been on the scene. Sure, they've been PG thirteen. Oh yeah, no, I'm talking more like early Bond, like like oh, Connery sure. and maybe Connery and maybe Roger Moore, and they're not that vastly different in terms of at least content. Maybe in terms of stylization of the content, and maybe it's more graphic that way, but I mean, the MPAA's ratings seem to have gotten harsher over the years, is what I'm trying to... Well, but Ben, I, and I don't mean to answer for you here, uh, Barry, but they also just understand that PG-13 is a more recent rating. True. That back those old Bond films didn't. There was no PG-13. So, and they would they were basically running on the high mm-hmm. end of a PG and just trying to basically cut whatever they needed to to keep it so that it didn't go into R. Is what I would have I would imagine sure, was the well, case. The, there, the but, PG-13 uh, came into existence, I believe, in 1986. Okay. So I believe that. Pardon my my recollection on, on history of the MPAA, but I believe it was because a Spielberg movie was directly in between a PG and an R. And I believe his, I don't know if it was Raiders of the Lost Ark or one of Spielberg's movies ended up, I think, being the first PG-13. There was that real chasm between PG and R. So you have the Bond movies where, boy, it's like Airplane. The Airplane movie was PG and they showed uh, bare breasts. It was that it was that area where you just don't you didn't know where to go with it because PG wasn't enough and R was too much. So the PG thirteen came into in eighty six. Through the power of the internet, I just figured out it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was rated PG, but had very strong either violence and or other content that forced the MPAA to create PG-13 rating. And actually the first film that was actually rated PG-13 was Red Dawn starring <laughs> Patrick Swayze um, way back. Uh, but I rem- and I watched that film. So, I mean, I, I, that's how long ago I rate. So yeah, no, it, it, the, the whole notion that the evolution of the rating system has really been kind of interesting. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I had Spielberg, but I had the wrong movie. I was close, Randy. Give me a couple of points on that one. <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you some. Okay, fantastic. You even yeah, had the right franchise. 
<laughs> that's right. It's changed so much. And I really enjoy having conversations with you and filmmakers about how the ratings have changed over the years. And not only in violence and sexuality, but smoking has become a rating element. I believe it happened in the last 10 years where if there's nothing rateable in a movie, but there's even a small instance of smoking, that automatically uh, pulls it up a rating to PG. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, Barry. Where can filmmakers find you? Absolutely. And I, I've enjoyed talking with both you and Randy. I can be reached at Barry at BFreemanMRC.com. The number is 818-632-0303. And my website is B, the letter B, FreemanMRC.com. Okay. Uh, we'll throw all of that up on ProducerFoundry.com too. Thank you very much. Well, I, that's a, I think that's a really uncommon topic to really talk about on these podcasts. Yeah, you know, we've never really kind of touched on the content of a project. We usually talk about how to get it seen, yeah. but this is a critical portion of that. I mean, it's the idea of if you're going to make something that even has any commercial viability, you need to apparently still have your film rated, and so going about that is not it's not trivial and so it's good to have exactly help. it's, it's nice. good to have it's good to have a source for help it's also good to have a source for some information to get started with yeah, yeah again you can contact barry through everything he just listed also watch this film is not yet rated on netflix and see now you can stop the podcast after we finish and you can go watch it now because it it's is worth, worth watching, watching. So, yeah. and uh yeah but before you do that i've been ben yenny you, no, you still are. You're ben right. Yenny, but okay. But, uh, I'm Ben Yenny. Uh, I am at the Gorilla Rep on Twitter. You can find me at thegorillarep.com. You can also find my book, which you just heard advertised, in bookstores and at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And who are you? Again, I've forgotten. And on bookshelves, you you're actually like you you had a book sink. Yeah, I know. Of, it's like at yeah, so, it's on yeah, bookshelves. A I real bookstore. It was so cool. I was I was so happy for you. Uh, so on my end, my name. Name is Randy Hall, and you can find me on Twitter at Randy Hall. Also, I do Sebastable Docs on Twitter as well, and you know I've got a bunch of Twitter handles that are in various stages of, of disuse. But most importantly, go find us on Producer Foundry at Producer Foundry on Twitter, Facebook.com/slash Producer Foundry, and ProducerFoundry.com for all your Producer Foundry-ing needs. Yes. Yeah. Talk to see you soon. <laughs>